Hello, this is Robert Crowther for ID the Future, a podcast of the Discovery Institute's Center for Science and Culture. What would happen if Charles Darwin were to come back today? That's the intriguing question posed by Nikhil John Ramju's fascinating short novel, I, Charles Darwin. Over the next several weeks, ID the Future is presenting an audio adaptation of Ramju's book. In today's episode, Darwin is shocked to learn about the impact his theory has had on areas outside of science. He lived in an age before antibiotics, before computers, and before the discovery of DNA. Yet Charles Darwin changed our science and culture forever. What would Darwin say if he returned to the Earth today? Find out in I, Charles Darwin. iCharlesDarwin.com Episode 3, Beast to Beast. Galapagos, the beagle and my youth, the fossil record, homology's claim and the tree of life. These were the first errands of my time-transcending visitation, all induced in me profound astonishment. My next discovery I did not seek out. I now note the great unexpected impact of my idea beyond science. It did not escape me that the philosophical and religious implications of my origin of species and descent of man would have wider historical effects. The reactions of my dear wife Emma to my theory are well known. The very idea, advanced earlier in my century by others, of a reality that owed its existence wholly to material causes, that idea acquired in my evolutionary theory the seal of science. My idea, posing an all-encompassing naturalism to explain life's origin and evolution, needed no god. It displaced our old civilization's story of creation and reduced the scriptures and the god that spoke from them to products of the human imagination. Such was the impact on Christian belief of my revolutionary idea. This, I say in due modesty. That I would become a legend in your time, as I have discovered, I attribute to my convincing demonstration in nature of the power of my fundamental idea. But frankly, I did not anticipate the scale of the power that my idea would achieve beyond the realm of science. Before I died, I had seen clearly how the concept of the evolutionary tree of life was igniting the imagination of the educated middle and upper classes in England, Europe, the United States, indeed all the Western world and beyond. I was attracting the staunchest and most combative of disciples, Huxley in my own land, and Heckel in Germany. My idea and its derivatives, the material origin, though still undiscovered, of the first primitive life-form and the survival of the fittest in nature's competition through natural selection, which I adopted from Malthus' population theory, these concepts together put in place the basis of a new paradigm of reality, which the world, recalling Aristotle, termed materialism or philosophical naturalism. 
Let me say that I was hardly the sole creator of this paradigm, either in its origin or its steady advancement. The announcement of other major idea systems preceded, paralleled, and followed mine. Auguste Comte's disarraying positivism, George Wilhelm Friedrich Hegel's seal on the inevitability of historical processes, the classes and masses gospel of Karl Marx, the, let me call it, animalistic explanation of human behavior that characterized the thought system of Sigmund Freud, and yes, the elevation of man to the morally free overman by Nietzsche. All these great displacing ideologies joined with the social implications of my own idea to implant in the modern mind a belief that all reality, all objects, even all thoughts generated by the human brain were products of purely material processes. As my enthusiastic German disciple Heckel put it, Natur ist alles, alles ist Natur. Nature is all, everything is nature. I did not foresee that my theory would evolve in ways beyond all expectation after I left the world, bursting the bonds of strict science to become, in Herbert Spencer's social Darwinism, a school of philosophy and social action, and, like Marxism and Freudianism, for many, a veritable religion. A religion. Who in my day would have guessed that each year on my birthday I would be worshipped in Darwin Day celebrations? Darwin Day, indeed. I'm a scientist, not an idol. My contemporaries, Karl, Siegmund and Friedrich, assumed and indeed magnified their roles as idols quite readily. Nietzsche, perhaps, not so happily, passing his last years, I have learned, off his chump, as we Englishmen put it. I have read extensively of the legacies of Marx and Freud. Were they, perhaps, off their chump, too, to begin with? I have learned things about their legacies and about mine that I did not wish to know. My idea, indeed, put something new into the world that I did not foresee. Did any of us anticipate the unexpected and lethal payment that would fall due for the world after we had stripped man of his historical belief, millennia old, in a transcendent universal morality? I found myself in a world I helped to make. I say this with no false modesty. I do not like all that I see. What are we as scientists if we abjure the objective weighing of new factual data? Science is honesty or it is nothing. It compels us to reassess even foundational ideas, ideas that generated a panoply of human disaster from the earliest 20th century almost to its end, ideas that indeed rule, still in part, the modern world. About that sad and tragic subject, I shall now put down my shocked observations before returning to the scientific revolution that your violent and brilliant century has given the world. That a man is a wolf to man is our inheritance from brute nature. Yet in my time, we believed man would break the bonds as superstition was overcome and ignorance disappeared. For us, an age of reason and progress had dawned. Certainly there were reminders that the full enlightenment of humanity still lay ahead. Chattel slavery lived on in parts of the world, even after the American Civil War, and the terrible carnage of that war recalled to us Europe's bloodiest rivalries of the past. And yet, the recent German wars of unification have been relatively bloodless. And the march of science and industry, the beneficent reach of our civilization throughout the globe, these auguries of enlightened times were everywhere observable. 
historians were concluding that ours was indeed the century of progress. How does one account for the age that followed mine? A century of violence of unprecedented dimension. When I learned of the Savage World Wars and the horrific genocides and democides, the killing by ideological regimes of scores upon scores of millions of men, women and children that befell the world in the 20th century, I read those accounts of human destruction on a scale beyond any century in modern history in a state of disbelief and utter shock. I could not grasp the scale of the savagery, a civilized savagery that had overtaken the world. Your times were the sunny posterity forecast by the Enlightenment philosophers. I could not grasp this monumental reversal in the descent of humankind. That we were evolved from beasts I firmly believed. Indeed, in my time, there were still unexplored markings on the maps. There were savage people still undiscovered. I think of my Fuegians, more vicious toward each other than the species of the apes. But by the onset of the 20th century, the impediments to ignorance and superstition in most places were largely fallen away. I weep as I read of the gas chambers, the great death camps and gulags, the very industrialization of the killing of races and classes and hapless masses, and not by the agency of your incomparably destructive world wars but in coldly planned and executed mass killings of unwanted populations separate from the activity of war. How does one explain history's descent into the greatest killing time the world has ever seen? Hitler's Auschwitz and its sister extermination camps in the 1940s, Lenin's and Stalin's forced famines and vast killing network, its Gulag archipelago across bloody decades from the 1920s to the 1960s, Mao's great leap forward in the late 1950s with its 20 million dead, the bestial jungle genocides in the 1970s of Pol Pot, the Cambodian revolutionary school in Paris, capital of the quintessential Western nature, and how many, many others too numerous to note here. How did evolution's most advanced, highest form of life, Homo sapiens, beautiful children, women, men, come to be so devalued that they were rounded up to be exterminated like rats? I ask myself, and I ask you, how do you live with this legacy so fresh in the memory of your older generations? Does the horror not shout out at you? I have visited your museums and monuments dedicated to National Socialism's Holocaust of the European Jews, and one is stricken to entertain the horror. But where are the museums and monument reminders of the, by multiples, greater genocides by revolutionary socialism, the communist killer states, the greatest of which was overthrown only 20 years ago? Where is your memory of cause and consequence? Does it require a time traveler to make you think? Did Marx foresee where his idea would lead in its application by Lenin and Stalin, Mao, Ho Chi Minh, Pol Pot and their imitators to the cold status execution of 110 million and more powerless human beings worldwide? Marx, possessed of a closed mind frozen in dialectic, grandfather of unspeakable brutalities. Here is what he said of my origin. 
Darwin's book is very important and serves me as a basis for the class struggle in history. I do not want the compliment. Marxism was not just anti-private property, it attacked the family and religion. You should read the Communist Manifesto. And Freud, in his long reign, I have learned, believing his system a replacement for Moses and Christ, effectively derationalized humanity. He reduced people to hapless creatures of instincts that were not to be denied. Man is not different from or better than the animals. Did the doctor grasp the consequences of legitimizing, placing foremost the animal in man? Currency notes of enlightened Austria today bear the face of Freud, who also acknowledged his intellectual debt to me, so it appears. The dreamer Nietzsche has blessed me too for my founding idea of the birth of humanity from the womb of a materialist world. Announcing in his siren song the funeral of God and the removal of all traditional moral restraint, he announced the devolution of evolution's most advanced life form to a species of higher order beast. I read of Nietzsche's fools today, morally free overmen who climb mountain peaks and write heroically in their diaries as they bravely die, caught in the ice storms. These tributes amaze and repel me. I did not seek them. My passion was Earth's life, its fascinating mystery. What is the meaning of the tributes? What is the meaning of the so well-documented impact of my idea beyond biology? Am I a creator, too, of riven modern man? God is dead, Nietzsche wrote. We have killed him with our science. Whose science, I ask? My idea shook the scientific world. Its implication dislodged religious belief and installed a radically new lens through which the world would view all reality from the very beginning of life on Earth to the most fundamental philosophical and religious questions. It allowed for no creation and no God. It allowed for a morality not universal for all men but contingent in time, place and cultural circumstance. It reconstructed human values, even good and evil, as human inventions. All is relative. Alles ist Natur. Here is what the young seminary student, who later became known as Joseph Stalin, is said to have exclaimed when he discovered my idea. They tricked us all along. There is no God. Lenin, creator of the Soviet totalitarian state, kept a little statue on his desk, an ape sitting on a pile of books, including mine gazing at a human skull. And Mao, butcher of tens of millions of his own countrymen, regarded the German Darwinismus writings as the foundation of Chinese scientific socialism. He mandated my works as reading material for the indoctrination phase of his lethal Great Leap Forward. The powerful impact of my writings on the German mind through Heckel and others is well known. Their impact was fundamental to the rise of eugenics in Germany and Great Britain, as well as in the United States and elsewhere. Indeed, my own cousin, Francis Galton, drawing on my idea, was the founding spirit of modern eugenics. It is beyond dispute that my idea, filtered through the eugenics and racial strains of social Darwinism, powerfully affected Hitler's genocidal policies and racial superiority-based war-making. Hitler thoroughly absorbed my struggle-for-existence notions. One need only consult his famous early memoir. For him, traditional, transcendent, universal morality had no objective existence. 
evolutionary ethics to eugenics to racial extermination. For the theoreticians of National Socialism, the thought sequence is undeniable. Scholars of Nazism almost universally acknowledge my baleful influence on Hitler. My theory altered the way people thought about morality. It was a major contributor to the moral relativism, whose acolytes flourished as beasts of the modern world. Would these great malefactors have formulated their disastrous dreams without me, I who made blind nature the creator? Is it I who ungodded modern man, dissolved the objective moral world, set in motion the great wheel of the violent 20th century? Darwin, Marx, Nietzsche, Freud? Were we indeed the four horsemen of the century of apocalypse for so many millions? An American historian, Sontag, has written of your broken world, the period after the First World War, when the new thought systems I have noted gelled into adamant, self-sealed, totalist ideologies, evolving as death-dispensing regimes that commanded total political and moral authority. I read of the ungodded power states that carried out their monumental crimes, regimes which assumed to themselves the mantle of higher moral authority, permitting all things. A conviction grips me that the world's greatest loss in your time was the relativizing of morality, the putative killing of God. Nietzsche showed prescience when he articulated in 1887 his prophecy for the age ahead, the ruin of Christian morality, that great spectacle in 100 acts which remain reserved for the next two centuries. What would Nietzsche say if he could return, as I have been privileged to do, if he could return at the midpoint of his great prophecy of doom? I ask again, am I not party to that great killing, perhaps more than the others? Was it not I who gave scientific endorsement to the death of God, that is, that his existence was but inventive myth? It was with great pain that I discussed that implication of my idea with my beloved wife. She was in deepest distress. And yet I could not compromise what my theory rationalised, supported, I believed, by closest observation. And so I do not shirk recognition of my legacy. Science asks all questions. I have read intensively in my year with you. I have haunted your libraries and laboratories. Some of you have reported fleeting glimpses of me in my previous incarnation. It seems I sometimes revert when I grow excited, when what I discover to have happened since 1882 literally takes my breath away. So what is my legacy? I am a founder. I am a destroyer. My revelations secularized the mind of the 20th century and beyond, nullifying mankind's need for a creator god. My idea was electrifying like nothing that had gone before. Through the 1880s and 1890s, I learned from your historians, thousands upon thousands of the educated classes of Europe and North America and beyond ceased to believe in the God of history and in any transcendent reality. Man, and not an invented God, came to stand at the summit of reality as life's highest form evolved to his station in accordance with an iron law of nature that I had made believable to mankind. My revolution gave birth to scientism, the encompassing by science of all reality. I did not see the unintended consequence, 
the de-civilizing of man, his devaluation to a hapless product of a blind, accidental and random material process utterly without meaning in a meaningless universe. I had not reckoned with the social and political force that my idea would generate in the world. I have studied your demythologizers, of which so many emerged. How rapidly did your new substitutes for God appear, claimants to absolute moral authority over you, authority previously possessed by the now-dead God, as Nietzsche confidently put it. I studied these developments incredulously. Man to overman, to demigod, to embodiment of highest moral authority in an accidental, godless universe, apogee of evolution, killer of his devalued, non-human fellow men in extermination camps and chambers by the scores of millions, men, women, beautiful children, and yes, babies in the womb. Beast to beast, in the most advanced of all centuries and eras, history weeps. I, Charles Darwin is based on the novella by Nicol John Romjew. Audio adaptation by John West and Jens Jorgensen. Narration by Robert Blythe and Andres Williams. Music by Pond5.com. Copyright 2013 by Nicol John Romjew and Discovery Institute. All rights reserved. If you'd like to get the original book on which this audio production is based, visit icharlesdarwin.com. At that site, you can also find out how to purchase the entire audio production as an iTunes album or a CD. Be sure to listen for next week's episode, The Secret of the Cell, where Darwin learns about DNA and other amazing discoveries of molecular biology since he developed his theory. For ID the Future, this is Robert Crowther. Thanks for listening. This program was recorded by Discovery Institute Center for Science and Culture. ID the Future is copyright Discovery Institute 2013. For more information, visit www.intelligentdesign.org or www.idthefuture.com.